just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. He's David Gibb. And we have a special guest this week on How Wrestling Explains the World. Darnell Mitchell. Darnell, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, uh, my name is Darnell, obviously. I'm actually from uh, New York City, out of Brooklyn. Actually, I'm a fashion stylist. I dress people for a living, but I'm also a nerd on the side. Uh, <laughs> I love video <laughs> games, wrestling, and long walks on the beach. Darnell, you were not a nerd on the side. Uh, the first time... I had a total lie. <laughs> the first time we met. He like specifically, as far as I know, because I'm pretty sure you said this on the internet, so I think I'm not speaking out of school, uh, like seeked me out because I was wearing a Nakamura shirt and helped me out at the J. Crew you were working at at the time. So like that's how we met. Uh, And I've been following you on the internet since on Twitter. I mean, we're friends on Facebook, but I've been following you on Twitter and uh, you're a pretty uh, outspoken, I would say, I think that's fair to say, um, person in terms of LGBT. BTQ representation in wrestling, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. The other is that I follow you on Twitter and you're probably my favorite Twitter account other than Dave's. So that was the other reason. Oh, that's really, really nice of you to say. Um, yeah, I, I sometimes get in trouble for how vocal I am about certain things, but I, you know, I figure, yeah, someone's going to do it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to block me? <laughs> no, and that's, uh, and, um, this episode, we're gonna we're gonna get into uh, LGBTQ representation uh, towards the end, but it's something that's definitely gonna come up uh, because this week's episode topic is will they or won't they? So uh, this clip is Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. Uh, for those that don't watch wrestling as much and are just here for the nerdy stuff, uh, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty is the most famous tag team breakup of all time. Uh, it is the, pretty much the gold standard. It is not the only example, but it is the best example of uh, what we're going to be talking about, which is the will they or won't they trope inverted by wrestling. Uh, so here's the clip. My fault. I'm sorry. I want this thing to work with the Rockers. Okay, because together we can make it to the top. But it's up to you, Shawn Michaels. It's up to you. Do you want it? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn my back to you right now. And if you want to go on your own, then walk off and leave. If you want to stick together and make this thing work, when I turn around, we're going to shake hands and we're going to go on a rock and roll like the rockers can do. They need each other. You know that. Sounds fair to me. He's not going to walk away. They need each other. See, one without the other isn't any good. Oh, oh, I knew he was going to do that. I just knew he was going to do that. He don't need Janetti. I told you that off and on. Are you kidding? What a despicable act that was. Is there a problem? 
They're done. They're finished, Monsoon. Yeah, there's a problem with you, Sean. I, I love that clip for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one is that Shawn Michaels debuts his catchphrase, I believe, in that, which was, I don't think so. Uh, which is the worst catchphrase ever, but it's, I don't think so. But what I find also interesting is the ways in which this fits into the definition of, or what we, uh, what TV tropes defines as the will they or won't they trope. Uh, it actually splits it into two. So I wanted to focus on the first half of the definition to begin. Um, the way tvtropes.org, which is kind of the best place to find the origins of a lot of these things, uh, defines it as two characters, often combative, but with obvious unresolved sexual tension, who resists going into a full-blown relationship for a rather long time. Of course, wrestling inverts this uh, by making it, you want to see a tag team break up. But I think what's interesting, especially in that clip, is the words they used to describe the relationship that Marty and Sean have. Um, Dave, did you, doesn't it feel like they're talking about a relationship in some way oh yeah definitely when it's talking about like they need each other and they're better together like those are literally things that you hear in like romance movies so yeah there's definitely kind of a a couple-y aspect to this definitely how did it read to you darnell um i say this all the time wrestling is like the gayest thing in the world so like i think everything in wrestling has a sexual undertone whether they want it to be or or not um everything comes off like people are in a relationship because the idea that you can't be in a wrestling company, the idea that you can't succeed in a wrestling company without your partner uh, definitely rings like uh, something else is going on. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was hoping that someone would say, yeah, wrestling is uh, rife with homo rife is the wrong word. I should say it is. There is a lot of homoeroticism in wrestling. Uh, no, it's rife with okay. homo stuff. <laughs> I mean, they're oiled up. It's like when people are getting so surprised about it. I'm like, this is all pretty gay. It's amazing, but it's all pretty gay. <laughs> rife makes it. Yeah, a lot of the kids in my uh, a lot of the kids in my elementary school class made made that very clear to me when I was younger. Is they almost want to say that there is something else go not something else going on, but like this is a deeper relationship than we recognize. But it's it's almost literally like love that dare not speak its name, and it's it's consistent. It's something that happens a lot, and I think it has a lot to do with the way that we interpret as a society male friendships, right? Yeah, I, I think it's also. Um... I mean, I don't know if this is going to coincide with what you're what you're saying, but I think men, uh, particularly heterosexual men, have a hard time uh, grasping the ideas of a friendship that has emotional resonance in it. So I think subconsciously it's easier to imagine people in a relationship that is homoerotic. Does that make any sense? Oh, 100%. That, yeah, it, uh, 100%. Yeah, that men can't have intimate relationships with one another uh, without it being like, oh, you two are, is that essentially what you're saying? That yes. essentially, that I, Dave, I can't tell Dave I love him. I love you, Dave. Uh, without it being implied on some level that we're sleeping together. Yes, exactly. Is that, it, it, it's the same thing. And I mean, that's the point. It's the same thing with, do men just does everyone think that only men only want to fuck is that is that am i just learning this now well it's definitely not like a just now thing i mean if you think back to like ancient <laughs> mythology right like the greeks like uh 
like Hercules and Achilles, like they have male lovers, like in addition to implied female lovers, but like sex has always been like a part of male power and male athleticism and the whole kind of really messy male identity, like as pretty much as far back as we have literature. Would it be fair to say that this, especially given the context of, uh, I believe at the time, someone like Pat Patterson having an importative creative role in the company, uh, who is at the time a closeted, but it was an open secret backstage. He is a now an openly gay man. Uh, do you think that it, there is more to it in the way that we talked about, Dave and I talked about last week, there's definitely more of a, dialectic going on than we realize is this another case do either of you think where we're actually the homoeroticism was in front of us the entire time it's just we refused to see it absolutely i think that a lot of times in wrestling it's it's there and i think people have a hard time realizing it or uh, or wanting to recognize it you know i could use this as an example uh in nxt people didn't see the homoerotic uh, side of Velveteen Dream versus Aleister Black, and I could not understand how you cannot see how homosexual this is, which is a great thing, but people just didn't get it. I think sometimes people just kind of, they don't want to believe, and they have a hard time believing, but I think it's almost always there in some Well, way. it reminds me a little bit, the way you, you've, you're talking about it, it reminds me of the way people act like Get Out is a movie about a grown man getting hypnotized. And it's like, no, no, it's not. You have to willfully be ignorant of what the actual text and subtext of what you're watching is. Absolutely. Because sometimes, and I don't know why, I don't know what it is, but with, with, um, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing man. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to take away your power. We're trying to take away the power of groups that don't get voices. <laughs> it's so much easier that way. It, exactly. Instead of just kind of realizing like it is what it is. Uh, and you don't have to overthink it too much. And it's okay to have emotions and to, you know, do gay stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, with the way that the trope works is that there's kind of an in inevitability to it. You know that they do, right? We knew from the beginning, including Bobby Heenan, because Bobby Heenan's the greatest person that's ever lived, that they were going to break up, right? And that's part of the will they or won't they thing. So it, to me, it's that we want to see in, in the same way that we want to see a woman. And this is something you and I talked about, Darnell. In the way that we want to see women contained by intimate relationships, we want to see men freed from them. And I think this really, like the tension in this is something that's been built up over everybody. Everybody that watches wrestling knows how long the burn was for the Rockers breaking up. So like we knew that they were going to break up. So what was the point of this from like, is it, and Dave, I, I'm interested in, uh, to hear your opinion on this too. Was the point just to have Sean come off as the heel and Marty come off as the face? Or was it to also break your heart on some level? Pardon the pun. I think, I think it was to break your heart and to tell you that stuff was going to be way more high energy going forward. So you talked about like how in wrestling, the will they won't they is kind of inverted. Because I always think that in TV... You know, like the will they won't they like you said it's inevitable you know they're gonna get together at some point and then the town is gonna burn like that's when the show is gonna get markedly worse when the will they won't they is finally resolved like that's when the writing's gonna peter out but wrestling's kind of the opposite when especially when it comes to a tag team breakup like this it's like will they won't they yes they will but then the town burns in a good way 
Like that, that's really when things come to a head and the action is set up. Whereas in uh, in like a sitcom, when you resolve the will they won't they, when that comes to a head, that's usually kind of the end of the golden era of the show. Like Friends is a really great example of that. Like the Ross and Rachel thing went out for went on for so long, and then when that kind of petered out, like the heart of the show was pretty much gone, even though they still had great characters and, you know, a lot of material left to write. The way that they break up for me in terms of the heartbreak is particularly interesting because it's so Sean's fault. It's so Sean's fault. It's his inability to accept the help that, that Marty gives him when Marty's apologizing at the beginning of that clip, what Marty's apologizing for is helping out Sean in a match where he was, where there was a lot of, uh, outside interference he was just helping Sean in the match basically I mean there's more to it but what happens is and Sean at another point in an earlier uh, earlier incident in this breakdown is talking to a female fan and in that interview he's like well I was just talking to chicks and it's like dude you don't like you just weren't paying attention. Like you don't have to be like, oh, whatever, man. Uh, girls, like that. It was so he's so performatively masculine that it just there's no chance that relationship could work at all. And it's I it, to me, are you how you were supposed to not just hate Sean and not in a way that was like good for him going forward? Never really made sense to me. He was just a bad guy. He wasn't even a heel. There was no sympathy for him. He just broke up a good tag team and on some level Marty's heart. Yeah, he, he did. But I think one thing also about, and it's annoying because he as a character um, was a complete dick, but you as the viewer, while you, I think wrestling is always about breaking someone's heart. I, if I, if my heart's not broken, then <laughs> what are we doing here? But, <laughs> but I think the one thing about Sean is while he was clearly in the wrong, I think WWE in particular, um, does a good job, and I don't know if they actually mean it, but you still have some sort of sense of sympathy and understanding for the heels. While Sean was a dick, you still knew that Sean did not need Marty Jannetty anymore. So you, the entire time, you're kind of like, oh, you're so awful, but you wrestle so well. (laughs) You don't need (laughs) this guy. Like, so I can kind of understand, you know, why you're being a dick because you really are one of the best wrestlers in the world. So I I want to hate you so much, but a a small part of me appreciates you and, and kind of wants you to be successful. And this is something that happens a lot in wrestling. Tag teams break up all the time and they they usually follow something similar to this they'll they'll start bumping into each other during tag matches somebody will not want to make a tag um what's interesting is they actually do have a will they won't they which is it's billy and chuck they actually do have a will they or won't they in the history of at least with the wwe um i'm gonna ask you darnell because you're uh especially how angry did that did that make you angry because it made me angry as somebody who's just like lgbtq friendly like as someone who's actually a member of that community where did that like hurt you as a wrestling fan like did you i don't want to say did you feel attacked but does that feel like they they weren't taking representation for uh, for uh, your community seriously Yes, uh, this is rated R, right? I can curse, right? Oh, you can say what the fuck you want. <laughs> okay. Um, I Well, I started watching wrestling 22 years ago, so I was, what, 10? 
Um, mm-hmm. And one of the first people I even remember seeing was Goldust. And it was very, very hard. And I came out when I was 14, 13. Um, so I knew I was gay when I was 10. It was clear to me. I was just like, you know, this guy's way too cute for this just to be a coincidence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like seeing Goldust when I was younger and hearing them constantly use the word faggot would like terrified me because I was I was like wait wait I really really like this thing and I don't know why this guy's the bad guy because he's a drogonist and I don't know why they keep using that word and it just made me feel very uncomfortable and there were certain times where I couldn't watch wrestling because of that even as a young person so the Billy and uh, Chuck situation was just another example of you know when I was younger I tried to not go to wrestling shows because I would hear certain phrases thrown out by the crowd and I'm still you know 16 17 and it would just make me feel not very safe and I think the Billy and Chuck situation was another example of I didn't feel safe and I felt like we were being made a mockery of uh you know not every gay person uh or or a queer person or whatever um, acts like that the idea that they were using it to sort of advance something was unusual and the idea that this company that is is mainstream and global felt that that was a way to show representation for the LGBTQ plus community. It was just it was very disheartening when I was younger, and I actually stopped watching for a little bit afterwards. Just, uh, I, I don't want to see that on the thing that I love. Yeah, and that was I. I had actually not been watching during that time, and it's one of those things where I'm really, really happy. I, you had stopped watching too, Dave, right? I was dipping toes in and out and I remember kind of seeing some of the build up to it. And uh, yeah, just kind of even at the age of whatever I would have been like in the 15, 16, 17, whatever I was at that point, like kind of seeing where it was heading and like even then kind of recognizing who the auteurs were here and kind of where it was going to wind up. So uh, yeah, I, I strategically dipped my toe back out after seeing some of that stuff. So as not to see how it wrapped yeah, up. I, I mean, that just, that's terrible. Like the idea that it was so hurtful to you that you had to remove yourself from it is just like, it's so weird to constantly be reminded in, in way different ways of the ways in which uh, people who look like me and who love uh, people who are uh, love females, like uh, love people of a different gender, like, how much our stories get told. And then when we tell other people's stories, we intentionally essentially fuck them up for like our own, I don't edification, not edification even, because that would imply we learn something like our own satisfaction. It's extremely frustrating. And the idea that you said uh, something you've loved for so long, like how did you come back to it? I came back to it um, when I moved to New York City, maybe two years after I moved here. So was it nine years ago? Um, and I just started watching it on TV a little bit, and then my friend uh, was like, "Oh, I used to watch it too." And then we just kind of both started getting into it more and more. And it became a thing where we watched constantly. But uh, I still did not go to wrestling shows. Uh, I did not feel comfortable going to wrestling shows. Um, and then it wasn't about until five, six years ago when I went to, I believe, a Ring of Honor, the, what is it, a December show, like the Final Battle, <coughs> excuse me, uh, was like the first wrestling show I had been to in years. And then I started going to WrestleMania. Uh, I just kind of, it was actually a, a random uh, story. My friend Earl and uh, my friend, <laughs> kind of at the time, uh, Mark, he was an associate, really. 
they went to a, a show before WrestleMania because it was with Madison Square Garden, like house show right before Mania here in New York City. And a young lady behind us started screaming at us, uh, and she called me a faggot. And it was the first time that my friends had saw, like, what normally happens, which is a weird thing to say, uh, at a wrestling show. And they got very defensive, but I had to kind of calm them down and say, it's, it's fine. It's really, really fine. You know, I told her about herself, and I was just like, we, let's continue to watch the show. I was like, Cause none of this is going to help anything, uh, but this is just the norm. Um, which is <laughs> it's and so, and it, they were infuriated yeah, and then, like to me it's it's weird to have to tell them and I was like well this is what I hear like this is why I don't go to many wrestling shows I go to a lot more now because I has it gotten better oh, for you in your experience it's night and day um, I uh, I remember I went to one Ring of Honor show um, and they were calling someone in the ring a cocksucker uh, and then everyone in my section started booing the person. And they were just like, let's not do that. We're not doing that. Um, and I think now... So there's a lot more self-policing in that ab- sense? Absolutely. And there's not a lot of things that I have to do to uh, sort of get up and, I don't want to say make a scene, but you know, there were times even when I go to shows and you know, I'm a big advocate for women's wrestling. I love women's wrestling. And hearing people say awful things towards the women in the ring and I am that person that stands up in the section and tells everyone to shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, well, God bless you because, yeah, I would not want to, I mean, I, I have booed when people have done stuff, but like, I, I, I don't know if I'd have the courage, if a friend was offended, it was not offended, but if somebody said something to a friend, anybody who knows me knows that I, I would be the one screaming in the person's face, but I don't know if it were something like making fun of a, I don't know like I honestly don't know what would happen if someone were saying something to a performer what I would do because I've never really been in that situation where it wasn't something that was offensive out of hand and you shouldn't have been saying in public to begin with does that make sense yeah it does and I, and I think even I think alcohol helps uh, <laughs> yeah I don't drink so that definitely <laughs> it, it, it helps there's a um, my friend Dustin he I was at the raw I think it was like right after Mania at Barclays and I got fourth row tickets um, and I'm there with my friend Morgano and I'm hard camera the entire time. And I didn't recognize I was doing it, but Dustin was texting me during the women's match. I don't remember what was going on, but they were being very disrespectful and I'm standing up like hard camera, like arms folded, like yelling <laughs> at people. Like you need to stop this, sir. Like <laughs> it's just because I guess also my thought process is that I shouldn't think this way. But like, if you're gonna hit me, you can hit me. But I'm just gonna you're just gonna go to jail. So it's like, <laughs> I, oh, that's how I feel. It's like you can beat the shit out of me. You're going to jail. I'm not because I'm not gonna swing at no. you unless I have to. Like if you swing at a friend of mine, uh, you're gonna get swung at. But outside of that, like you're gonna hit me before exactly. I'm gonna hit and you. If you feel so confident to hit me, honey, I'm black and I'm gay. Do you want to hate Christ? Let's not go there, because <laughs> I will sue you for everything. Uh, so, so do you think it's um? Because I, I'm interested in this. Um, as why why do you think it's gotten better? Uh, because at least for the will they won't they trope, um, it got better. It has gotten better in the last like ten to fifteen years because there have been more uh, female 
creators who are actually telling stories about romance that appeal to everyone, including women. But that wasn't always the case. Well, they or won't they starts in the 1930s and 40s with the concept of the screwball comedy, which is just like a, it is what you think it is in terms of it being the evolutionary parent of will there won't they. It's about two equal uh, people of unequal standing, usually. Um, it's usually a class rivalry, right, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. It can be a class rivalry. It can be uh, a gender-based rivalry. But, uh, it can be like a boss and a subservient a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, his, uh, his Girl Friday uh, is about, a, correct me if I'm wrong, an editor for a newspaper and his star reporter or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think that it's that they were a relationship in the past and the and they are they they now of course hate each other and the movie is famous for being written at like at like 120 words a minute like they just spit this like super clever banter back and forth for like 90 minutes um very like fast paced and a lot of kind of comedy based about role reversal like i know uh back in the day kind of one of the rules of the screwball comedy was that uh and you can see how this is kind of rooted in some of the sexism behind this trope is uh, one of the rules of the screwball comedy is the man thinks like a woman and the woman thinks like a man. So when you were writing a screwball comedy like like His Girl Friday or, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking, what's the one with the tiger with Jimmy Stewart? Uh, that's the other really famous <laughs> example. Uh, but like when you were writing those, it was uh, the men think in like these very emotion forward type ways and the women are really goal oriented and no bullshit so that was kind of the the guts of the screwball comedy so it was a will they won't they narrative and there was also some kind of gender play some role play going on as well and i and i think the speed is important to note because that speed allows them to build up a lot of tension because there's so much banter that you get this like stockpile of evidence to go oh they're clearly belong together um, but for the most part, uh, what happens is there's a split. You get like the rom-coms happen through, but they really start to hit back up in the 80s uh, for second wave feminism reasons a little bit, but mostly just like that's what was popular. Um, but uh, the will they or won't they trope starts to float into television more because they have the time to build the tension. Um but you still don't see it that much when TV first starts out in the 1950s uh, because of social norms are wild. Like uh, I went through cause I was bored in writing part of the show um, doing some research at least. Uh, and I went through the first 10 years of television basically. And every single show that's in the top 10, that isn't like your show of shows or some sort of play house show is a married couple or if they have to have a relationship in the show, a widower, like there are no non-straight non-widow couples on television, essentially. And even the people who are married, like can't stay in the same bed and shit like that. So the idea that you construct a show around sexual tension is kind of would have been essentially yeah, I mean, it was pretty much literally idea. against the rules at the time. Like there was the Hollywood production code that was like very strict about, you know, what you could show or what you could imply in terms of romance. But yeah, as you were saying, like everybody was married to make sure that things were proper. And if there was a joke that maybe had a double entendre, like it was okay because they were married, you know, but you couldn't, you couldn't imply that there was, 
sex going on with like young unmarried people. So all the sitcoms in the early days of like television were about, yeah, middle-aged married people. Like the honeymooners is the best example probably. Yeah. And then there's the, there's uh, for instance, the Danny Thomas show, which was originally called uh, make room for daddy. Nothing sexual uh, about that. Him and his, <laughs> yeah. I've said that so many times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, originally, him and his TV wife didn't get along, so they got rid of her, but they couldn't get, have her divorce him, so they murdered her, essentially. She dies, and the second iteration of the show, which is called The Danny Thomas Show, is about him falling in love with the nurse who comes to take care of his, like, elderly mother or something like that. Again, I just went through, like, the synopsis. I didn't watch The Danny Thomas Show, for the love of God. Uh, and The the Avengers, which is probably the er example of the will they or won't they trope, Emma Peel's husband is like lost at war and he comes back at the last episode. So like, even then they were like, no, nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. Um, so eventually you start to see, like I said, with second wave feminism you, and the, the idea of a more independent woman in the workplace, you see stuff like obviously Mary Tyler Moore, that girl and uh, Murphy Brown. Um, but it wasn't until third wave fe- feminism, which is a, there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of components to third wave feminism, but the one in particular that I think accidentally created will they or won't they is the part of it that is uh, uh, focuses on sex positivity, which is to say that females need to be empowered to define for them what their sexual lives will be. Um, and I think what you see with that, and you see the transition start to uh, make shows where that's an important part. Uh, for instance, Moonlighting and Cheers. Um, and those are shows that are about things that also have a romance in them. Like uh, Dave and I were talking about this before the show started. Uh, Sam and Diane on Cheers is less than half the show. So Diane's only on the show for five years. And she I think she's dating Frasier for like two of them. So like, the, so like they, they do it. They have an actual reason to be apart for like a season and a half, if I remember correctly. And then they get together and then she leaves because she didn't want to be on the show anymore. But it's not as important to the history of the show as people make it out to be. And then you get something like Friends, which is a show that was a show that became more or less about a relationship. Though I I will say this, I'm not a huge fan of Friends. I believe both of you are fans of Friends or am I wrong about that, Darnell? I am so when people ask me uh, my favorite shows, the answer are always uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, Six Feet Under, Breaking Bad, and Friends. I watch Friends almost every night. If you put on an episode of Friends, I absolutely know in about ten seconds what episode it is from what season <laughs> and everything. Looking like- back on it, growing like now, there are there are parts of Friends that I do not like very much so. I wonder why. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's, I think it's so funny, but like, you know, they, it's a little homophobic at times. Uh, I don't know what New York they live in because there's a shit ton of black people around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you would not get that apartment for that price. It's nope. not going to happen. And yeah, so what... Uh, what Friends was was a show that be- – or, or do you guys agree with the assessment that it was a show about six friends that became a show about 
one relationship and then they kind of tried to like build out the show from that relationship or am i totally misinterpreting what i was watching in passing in the mid 90s i think that uh basically they were kind of taking the model of the big show that had come before them and that was seinfeld and i think they were trying to take the kind of seinfeld model of kind of goofy adventures of slightly larger than life new yorkers but the whole thing on seinfeld right was it was like the show about nothing and I think in Friends, they took Ross and Rachel and they kind of tried to make that the kind of main storyline that ran through everything to kind of sew the show together. So I think it was kind of the the tentpole, really, that, you know, that kind of kept the show from being too loose and too Seinfeld-like. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm sorry, guys. I, st- I, I still like How I Met Your Mother more. I think How I Met Your Mother is great. Uh, I think the last season is god awful uh, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> yeah we were talking about that too before you uh, before you got here um what i we, we wanted to talk about was actually that how i met your mother is just a show about will they or won't they that is the entire show is will they or won't they and who is she those are the only things that matter and what that does at least to me is break the trope i guess which I guess my question out of that is, was that for better or worse? Do you think that How I Met Your Mother, like, liberated the will they or won't they trope from, or I should say sitcoms from the will they or won't they trope? Or do you think it was just, like, another road to go down? Or just a thing that happened on the path towards, I don't know, uh, the Mindy, uh, oh God, what's the name of the Mindy Kalen show? Is it the Mindy Kalen show? Mindy Project. The Mindy Project, okay. Yeah, which is a, a, a which we'll get to is a a show that is a romantic comedy or a will they or won't they that is written by a woman. So it's like a the woman character on it is a fully formed person. I think one of the things about how I met your mother, uh, I'm not sure how much they thought uh, uh, about um, what sort of uh, stereotypes and, and and contrived stories they can break. But uh, the one thing about it that I, I always kind of it's frustrating to me is that Ted is the most unlikable character <laughs> or is that just me? No, 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 no. He's new. I, um, I actually recorded a, po- a podcast with my friend Darren about Frasier and we spend five minutes talking about how Ted is the biggest piece of shit ever. I recorded a podcast with my friend David Gordon about mad about you and we spent five minutes about how Ted is the worst person ever. So I'm pretty sure it's not just <laughs> definitive. <laughs> and um i think in particular what how i met your mother did was it made you like you said not root for ted really you kind of rooted for uh, almost like robin to get away from ted it feels like yes <laughs> and the same way when you kind of look back at friends and i again i still love friends but ross and rachel were a couple where i think Ross is a sociopath <laughs> throughout the entire show. He he has this illusion of this, and I'm going to say the word girl because I don't think he ever looks at her as an actual fully fleshed human being uh, that he liked in high school and is obsessed with the entire show and constantly tries to change her throughout the entire show to fit his needs and his requirements. But for some reason, that's considered like the happiest thing in the world. It's also like, what's his name? Jim in the office. I think he's kind of an asshole. Like it's just very it's very weird how the the people who are the for, uh, forefront of a lot of these relationships these men are just not good people. <laughs> it's, 
Yeah, and and Dave, you and I had talked about this when we were we were planning out the show. Um, your you brought up the idea that like this was a man's concept of what a woman wanted, right? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of where this trope comes from is like you know, like you said, uh, starting in the seventies when uh, you know there was this explicit edict that you've got to start writing television for women. Like this is the formula that a write you know that writers' rooms filled with men came up with for for what women want. So it's it's there it's about what women want, but it's like when the older guy in high school is explaining to you what women want. Like there's this whole way that in will they won't they the guy has to like prove himself to the woman uh, like professionally like Ross was always insisting on himself as being this big scientist and stuff. And, uh, and, and he has to pursue the woman. And, and even if she's saying no in the moment, she doesn't want to be with you. No, doesn't just mean maybe in will they, won't they writing. No means yes in three seasons, you know, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it really is like how a jock would in high school would kind of would explain how to get a woman and the way that dudes pursue uh, like, like Darnell was saying, it's like, it's not even like the, the, the male character doesn't even know what a real woman is like. It's like the movie uh, Chasing Amy. <laughs> yes, which is kind of Ooh. makes fun of the idea of just like, no, what you have unrealistic expectations of all of this. Like, <laughs> um, But it was also written by a man who, uh, <laughs> what it? sorry, it's, it's unaware and it's self-aware at the same time. That yeah. movie. Well, he's not a great writer, so like he almost gets there, and then when you hear him explain it, you're like, "Oh, that's what you were going for." It did not come across. I'm sorry. You really should have lampshaded <laughs> that a little bit better when you did. Don't give Brody the best lines, or is it Brody? Whatever, Banky. Uh, Don't give Jason. Brody the best. Yeah, Jason Lee's character the best lines when he's the explicit homophobe. Like avoid that <laughs> and then like the um, top classic comedic just reversal or whatever of like at the end when they're like oh no he's gay because he was the one the homophobe the whole, but it's played out in this like most juvenile like it, it it's handled so badly <laughs> right and and you mentioned the inevitability of these things and i think that's also what happens with tag teams to get back to the the main topic um tag teams are not allowed to just stay together I just want two best friends who like wrestling together. Is that like, is that so wrong? I, I No, not at all. I mean, I think the Usos are now officially the longest uh, tag teams never split up in WWE history or something like that. It's ridiculous. Like they, well, I mean, they're, they look alike. What the hell are you going to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think one of the things that is missing a lot in wrestling is um, being friends and, I, there's something amazing about like eventually using the New Day for example. I, eventually, I think the New Day will split up, but they don't have to split up and be like angry with each other. They can just kind of go their own way. And Biggie and you know Xavier Woods can every six months have a a clip together showing that they still like each other as human beings. Um, I, these people just have a hard time apparently maintaining friendships, and I'm just like, it's not that hard. <laughs> like, well, you, DTA, if I learned anything about wrestling, it's don't trust anybody, I think. Well, that's getting it kind of too. One of the things with wrestling is like everybody can only be best friends or worst enemies. It's like the women's division. It's like oh, it, everybody is either constantly best friends or former best friends with someone. And that's the only, those are the only two relationships you can have in the world. And it's, I, I don't know, I don't know the writing staff by name, but I, I have a feeling it's because like real, actually, you know who has a pretty solid real female relationship? Alexa and Naya, I feel yes. like, but that's 
because Naya and her and Alexa are probably the two stars of the show. So there are other than Asuka, who's a transcendent star that I think is on a completely different level. I think in the women's division, you have Naya and Alexa as the, the stars of the show on some level. Uh, because uh, attraction, that's the word I was looking for. Asuka's on an attraction level uh, where Naya, they're trying to tell a lot more intricate stories. And I think it's because they are allowed to be on screen so much more than the other women are. Even Sasha and Bailey get way less screen time, it feels like, than Naya and Alexa. And I also think that there's more so than um even bailey and sasha there is this uh, and dave and i talk about this a lot on the show there is an interior life we get to see because of instagram and stuff like that with naya and alexa that i feel like feels more real than it does with sasha and bailey it is one of the i kind of love total divas and total bellas because um, for me, wrestling, yeah, it's, it's kayfabe, blah, 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 blah. But the thing that, that that attracts me the most is, like, getting to know the people and having some sort of concern for you as a person. And I think Total Divas, yes, it's contrived, but um, I would never have the appreciation for someone like Nikki Bella, who didn't have to get better. It didn't matter. You know, you were dating John Cena. <laughs> like, you could continue just doing what you were doing before. But she got considerably better and like decided, you know what, I guess I actually do want to be a wrestler. And it still makes me uh, seeing them in their natural, as natural as can be, but, you know, their natural lives is, is fantastic. Um, and then also I wanted to mention, I don't know if you know this, but one of my friends is Tom Casillo. And he's actually, he was the woman's writer for WWE from 2011 to 2016. And oh, to, cool. yeah, yeah, and to hear the stories of him actively trying to get things passed and just being sort of batted aside because it was like, no, no, that's too much for the women. So like the little bit of stories that you see where it's like consistent during those years or like people have fully formed friendships, even someone like Caitlin and AJ, they still had a friendship in the show. That's, that's true. Tom, I, Tom yeah. wrote all of that type of stuff. Um, Which is good to hear that, but it also feels like, and God bless your friend Tom, they should have women they writers should. on they staff. They should, but the one positive, you know, and to, to, they should absolutely have women writers. Him being a, he was also, well, not was, he still is pretty gay, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had a relationship with the women more than a lot of the other writers did because uh, there's a natural mm-hmm. sort of sense of camaraderie. So he actually spent the time to get to know all of them as people and use that for his writing for WWE, which I thought was like, that's really, really cool that you, know, you at least were trying to do something. Um, but my thought process about it still also a lot of things are, it's like Black Panther. Oh, well, why does this feel like, you know, it's written by someone else? Because Black people wrote it. <laughs> like, if you want yeah. to get the sense of what it feels like, you know, have someone that's actually in those shoes write it for you. It's not that hard. Well, and you said it earlier, when it was the first time your friends had ever been in a show and heard someone they know get called uh if you I, i'm just gonna say it because a faggot like that was not something they had experienced and you were like oh this is every day for me yeah which it's so you know i i shouldn't be as not i shouldn't have been as nonchalant about it as i was but i think that was the especially for one of the guys who when i first met him didn't really know any gay people 
and used to say like one of my most frustrating phrases and it sounds so dumb but like oh that's so gay it's like what are you inferring like you're not 12 anymore we're all we're all grown people and he didn't get all these little things I would say I was like you know you know think about what you're saying think about this context and like the lady I didn't even mention it the lady who said it her child is sitting right beside her who's like seven and so what one of the things I did say to her I was like you're being very disrespectful not even to necessarily to me but to your child you should be better than that I was like, you should actually lead by example. Um, but it blew, it, it's still like, it's unfortunate that they had to listen to that and hear that to finally get it. Uh, but I'm glad they finally got it. And and I think that perspective is something that's just missing from wrestling in general. I mean, obviously, like you said, your friend Tom was on the writing staff. He is an openly gay man. I would assume yeah. openly gay. You're talking about him in public. <laughs> Tom but just I, came I, out to his parents right now. <laughs> Just in time for the podcast to drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that ha- also, like like we were talking about, happens in in uh, with women. But what's weird with wrestling is they don't they act like gay people don't really exist, or at least I should say the WWE, right? Because y- you know much more about this than than I do, quite frankly. Uh, but there are a significant or not insignificant amount of performers on the indies that are openly gay or oh, am I completely misconstrued? Huge amount. And I get, sometimes I get um, a little bit of slack while I absolutely love the golden lover story. Um, the idea that Kenny Omega, who has been pretty, uh, not overt, but he's pretty clear that he is bisexual. Um, but there are a lot of openly gay wrestlers everywhere, especially, you know, I work with, um, with Capital Wrestling and I do Capital Wrestling's uh, podcast and they're based out of Hoboken. Their main star is Sonny Kiss, who is a flamboyantly gay black man. You know, one of their biggest tag teams has Nyla Rose in it and she's a trans woman. Um, and they never mention it. It's just Sonny Kiss is a good guy. And that's it. You know, it's not... Uh, it's not WWE. We're making history. A gay black man is main eventing the show. It's just Sonny Kiss is a great athlete. People like him. He's a good guy. Uh, so, of course, he should be in the main event of everything. But there's a, there's a lot of representation out there. A lot. I mean, Rick Cataldo. Do you know Rick Cataldo? I, I do not. I'm sorry. Rick, uh, <laughs> Rick Cataldo. I'm ashamed of you. Uh, no, <laughs> Rick Cataldo has been around for 11 years in the wrestling business. He's only 25. Uh, but he's actually based, uh, he's from Bay Ridge, uh, Brooklyn, and he's known as the Boy Diva. <laughs> and he dresses in drag. And he does, um, he <laughs> he had a great team with uh, Eddie McQueen, uh, who is also openly gay, based out of New Jersey. And their name was the Fella Twins. <laughs> um, <laughs> and them and Jamie Senegal, there's, there's so many gay wrestlers who are... Uh, open unfortunately there's more eyes on male gay wrestlers than there are female uh uh, queer wrestlers uh but the the talent pool is is vast and And i wish people more people knew and is that something you've uh along the same lines as the um the audience is changing and it being dang night is that something that you've noticed or were you not following it closely enough or was it one of those things where um you just you in the same way that you like look people from your hometown you're like oh man that guy played in smithtown it's down the block from where i grew up is it kind of like that with gay performers i know that's a really like crude way to put it but like where you're like you 
look for performers who are openly gay and root for them as not because they're gay, but as a way to show support within the community for people who are putting themselves out there? Yeah, I guess I do. Uh, I still try to be as, um, you know, Rick Cataldo is a great heel. So, you know, his job is to make oh, me be him. Yeah. But like, I'm the first person to buy Rick Cataldo shirt. You know, um, mm-hmm. and I think when I first went to like Sunny Kiss, I had heard of Sunny Kiss, um, and like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I doing my job. Uh, I have met my favorite actors. I've met my favorite musicians. I've dressed them for events, so I meet celebrities a lot. And I don't really get like starstruck. Uh, the only time I ever got really starstruck was Daniel Bride, and I'm like bawling. But I've seen that picture at the door. Oh God, it's such a trying day. Uh, I remember when I went to the, my first Capitol Wrestling show, and I knew Sunny Kiss was going to be there. We got there a little early, and everyone's doing their thing in the ring, like practicing. And I saw Sunny Kiss in front of me, and he waved at me, and I didn't know how to respond to him. And I was <laughs> literally like, uh, I was like a child. And this is six months ago. Um, and he like made an effort to come and talk to me, and I didn't really know what to say to him because it 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 was very emotional for me as a fan of wrestling for twenty two years to finally see someone that looked like me and was a good guy, and it, I didn't know what to say to him or how to express that to him because I think that's a lot of that's a lot for someone to probably. <laughs> hear and take but it, it it blew my mind that night when i saw him wrestle and seeing all these people just cheer for him because he was the good guy he was the right guy and athletic and beautiful and the biggest butt in the world uh so many great qualities um <laughs> but it like it, it, it blew my mind and it still blows my mind to this day each time i see him wrestle at capital wrestling because it's just I never would have thought I would have saw it. It's like I said earlier, like I've always seen people who look like me and talk like me and act like me. And so like when I watched Black Panther and people in the in the crowd were literally like screaming Wakanda forever, it like made my heart sing. <laughs> I say it on now at work uh, whenever I'm like walking around and I see like, like there's like there's a lot of uh diversity actually in Plumen Health. I mean there's eighteen hundred employees. But if I see someone she's got like great skin, I go, Girl, Wakanda forever <laughs> Like I've literally done it ten times and everyone thinks it's uh the the funniest thing. Um but you you actually reminded me, I wonder if I can find it real quick. Uh there's a great quote that uh I can never say his last name, but Kumail Nanjani. Oh I think I'm right. Um said, said at the Oscars and I think it's one of the most beautiful quotes and I think it represents everything uh is some of my favorite movies are by straight uh by straight white dudes about straight white dudes and now straight white dudes can watch movies about dudes like me and you relate it's not that hard i've done it all my life yeah i really like that uh what what he said i Mm. kamel for some reason blocked me he's literally like the only person to ever block me on twitter i think it involves wrestling I've never really said anything to him other than about how the WWE actually does provide medical care for his empl- their employees. And I think he blocked me for that, but uh, I do love Kamal. And I, I really, that quote um, is an important one uh, specifically uh, from Kumail, who was, I, I believe, he, yeah, he was nominated for original screenplay. Uh, Jordan Peele won mm-hmm. for Get Out. He was the first African-American um to win i can't which is fucking insane to me he's only been the fourth person nominated i believe or that might have been for director but it's in, like 
Black people have been 10, 10 to 12 to 15% of this population of our population for literally like the since the beginning of our country. <laughs> and four times they've been nominated for a major award in an industry that is made and should be made and constructed to represent us as a whole, considering it's probably the most American industry there is in terms of projecting Americanness out. It's, it's fucking insane. It is, and you know, and, and I think sometimes, I think it, it it frightens people because they they don't know what it's like to not be the norm anymore, uh, and it's kind of the idea of like, well, you know, other people have dealt with this all the time, you know, you know, and it's it's like, well, welcome, but you're still dominating eighty five percent of the things, you know. I'm sorry that Natalie Portman and What's her name? Uh, Emma Stone. You know, when Emma's not playing an Asian person, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of. I don't want to say shit it on, but like, you know, we're kind of uh, passive aggressive about their best uh, director nominations and constantly pointing out that there was only one woman. But like, you know, I'm sorry you feel bad about that, but you you'll get over it because next year there'll probably still be five guys nominated, and there might not be any women nominated. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it's important. It's important for these stories to be told by people who actually live and breathe these stories. And I think, uh, and you, you did mention this, uh, so um, I think we we can talk about it now. Um, uh, talk about it now, like it's a big secret. Um, Golden Lovers, um, which, as you said, um, is uh, Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi, um, and it appears, though I, I, I don't, I guess I don't know uh, how to. Uh, frame this he is is he in the closet or is he bisexual i, I mean his truth is his truth but as uh, am, it appears that he's openly bisexual or am i misinterpreting things he said like i'm as straight as my hair didn't he say that i uh, yeah he said that but like and there are um, moments where I, he there was a, a scene where he's doing a hundred question interview and the lady, she goes, you know, describe your perfect date. And he goes, Oh, when a man or a woman, she goes, well, well, with a woman. And he goes, Oh, well, I'm just saying like, if I was going on a date with a guy, the date would probably be a little different. Uh, and then he continues going on. He likes things that he liked this big sort of uh, sub thread that got really, really popular on Twitter about the history of the Golden Lovers. Um, he has never said uh, he is actually bisexual, or he, he's alluded to it quite a bit, uh, which is something I still have a little bit of an issue with, because uh, it's great that you're uh, out there and people get to see you, but um, what I'd like you to actually do is do things that support the LGBTQ plus community instead of just being in a storyline, uh, mm-hmm. so I'd like you to be a little bit more involved in it because uh, I can see everyone else being a little bit more involved in it. And you're probably the most prominent person in that situation, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and, and uh, in general, um, the advancement of LGBTQ plus, am I, am I getting, did I get the whole alphabet? That's, that's what I say. People like have added on like 15 different words and I'm just like, I don't have time for that. Plus <laughs> honey, you're in the plus. <laughs> Um, I just what uh, what I've I am asking Dave and 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 Darnell this because I am an ignorant fool. Uh, the in the last twenty years, what has been or in the last forty years, say what has been been the major 
advance how far have we gotten at least in terms of uh queer literature in general and queer representation how how big of a sea change is this is it unprecedented or is it just something that was has been there all along and we've just kind of noticed it in the last 20 years i feel like it's been there all along in certain places especially um i mean i feel like dave actually might know this a little bit more than me but like in literature and other uh, mediums i just think it hasn't been seen on screen for people to actually grasp but like in terms of literature i feel like <laughs> for lack of a better word there's a lot of gay shit going down <laughs> <laughs> i can confirm that as a as someone with a degree in literature there's definitely a lot of gay shit going down and it's beautiful but no i mean i, I think that the kind of the the school of i think i think for the last century from like maybe the victorian period maybe maybe through the AIDS epidemic, so like 1880s to 1980s or into the 90s, I think that kind of the way uh, that there was was kind of the Oscar Wilde school, that there was like a certain kind of literary gay character that our like society accepted as like an eccentric who was very valuable to the society. But I think in the last 20 to 30 years, that started to shift where like, you know, that the, the, the the LGBTQ plus uh, voices are 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 not just kind of are not just sorry. I said say that five times quick because isn't it the hardest thing? I, I don't think I could. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 I mean I, I you know I think it was kind of a literary or an artistic novelty for a hundred years, and I think in the last thirty years now we as a literary world or as an artistic world, there's less. It's like okay, like you know. Uh, I guess it's diversified over time that there used to be sort of a gay literary identity or a gay literary identity that straight people knew about, you know, (laughs) but I I feel like things have kind of gotten way more developed, you know, since, since the eighties. Yeah. Which I think is a function of uh, things like uh, intersectionality and, and different uh, social movements uh, and, and just the platforms upon which uh, voices can be uh, projected from, uh, has completely changed the way that we see the world by on a fucking daily basis. Um, and, and along that line, I, I wanted to ask uh, Bo, uh, Darnell specifically, and then uh, bring it out to Dave. Um, you talked about Kenny uh, and this concept of him kind of, um, I, I don't want to imply that bisexual people pretend to be bisexual or that they do it for attention, but is that, if he were open about it, would you more, I, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but would you embrace a storyline like this, a full-blown will-they-or-won't-they storyline with explicit gay text? Uh, would it be, I, I guess my question is this, would you be okay with it if he is not openly, but is an open secret about him being bisexual and this is the way in which he comes out? Or would you prefer he front-loaded the coming out and was, you know, spoke his truth and then did this storyline? Like, which for you would be uh, more representative of your community and the larger LGBTQ plus community? Uh, and I don't want you to feel like you have to speak as a representative, but I'm saying for you as a member of that community. Well, as the leader of the community, um, I... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I kind of feel like I would 
probably prefer him to be a little bit more open about it now. And I've, uh, I've gotten some flat because again, I love the story, but like some people were kind of like, well, you know, how much more overt does he have to be? I'm like, yeah, well, kiss that motherfucker. <laughs> like I, I want it to be, if we're going to be gay, let's be gay. Like, I don't need to like blowing the dude on screen, but like, I, I, the fact that there are still men who are like, no, we're just friends is the issue. It's because we are, we're still kind of, you know, skirting around the issue. And kind of? <laughs> and it's like, yes, kind it's, of? <laughs> their names are Golden Lovers. Um, you know, Kenny has said in interviews that if you haven't even seen the interviews, so what difference does it make? So, like, to you, you've never even seen the him question his sexuality if you don't follow him on twitter you wouldn't get to see this the point is is that most of the a lot of the rest of the relationship is being established on different platforms and not on what i see on tv and i i need it i need to see it on tv because i don't like the idea of all of this praise and love going to a story that's not as overt as it should be um because again i want <laughs> actual representation and not like uh, fake representation yes and I, and I think that it becomes uh, uh, what's that word heteronormative like yep. the idea that you know or do we really really like Kenny because he is quote unquote a straight passing male um, and that's why we love the idea of them together compared to someone like Rick Cataldo who dresses in drag you know, mm-hmm. is it because it's easier for us to digest? Um, and I think until he actually is very overt and very clear about it, I'm always going to have apprehensions about it because I need, you know, I'm out proud for 17 years. That's fine. But the kid who lives in Utah who watches New Japan Pro Wrestling, who loves Kitty Omega, I think that kid needs to hear it from Kitty Omega and, and to feel empowered to see that in his hero. And I think when we continue this weird sort of yeah we're pretty sure but we're not sure i think that that does a disservice to him and i think it does a disservice to what the storyline could and should and would coda not being uh, actually gay in in real life outside of kayfabe would that diminish the storyline for you or would it just be because to me it would just be performing but i I don't want to speak for a member of the lgbtq plus community that would be insane um i know i'm a white guy and that's what we do but i'd rather not so like uh (laughs) would that bother you again as a member of the community not necessarily as a representative of the community but as someone in the community no not at all it's the same way um while sometimes i think uh, i'm gonna name another wrestler who is it's very uh socially active on Twitter and uh, socially progressive, but sometimes I think it gets in his, his, he puts his foot in his mouth a little bit. But David Starr, for example, um, he is in a relationship with Jack Sexsmith. Jack Sexsmith is a pansexual wrestler uh, who primarily wrestles in Progress Wrestling. And when David Starr, the wrestler, goes to Progress and teams with <laughs> Jack Sexsmith, their, their team name is Sexy Star, which <laughs> I just think is the funniest thing in the world. But they kiss each other. Constantly. And it is clear that David Starr's character is in a homosexual relationship with Jack Sexsmith for Progress Wrestling. David Starr, from, at least from what I know, is not um, homosexual uh, at all. And it doesn't bother me at all because it's not, it's not a caricature of the thing. It's just 
a part of his personality as a wrestler. So I wouldn't. I don't think Coda not being uh, part of the community uh, is a negative whatsoever. But you would. But to bring it back to Kenny, Kenny kind of using it, being is that in and of itself a will they? This sounds meta, but is that in and of itself for either of you a will they or won't they storyline? Whether or not he's going to come out as gay or bisexual in this case. And would you be okay, uh, either of you, with watching a a storyline that is based on, for instance, a performer coming out publicly and whether or not they're going to do that, which is to, like, are you okay with these things, given that it's wrestling and they exploit everything? If they do it with something resembling respect, as, and I'm also going to... Uh, include myself in this conversation because of the uh, along the same lines if they did the billy and chuck thing but respectfully uh which seems impossible but something closer to that uh idea would you be okay with that or like are you worried for instance uh, that i am like the wwe would fuck it up no matter what and that their audience wouldn't be able to take it because they're WWE's audience. Well, I'll jump in just because I quickly, on uh, the last show, I made a podcast recommendation for an episode of Dutch Mantel's podcast. Uh, so go back and listen to the previous episode for the specific dates and time cues on that. But uh, he specifically said, and I mean, and this is from like, you know, the crustiest white grandpa Carney out there. He said, you know, the, the biggest potential, the next biggest thing, the next wrestler who's going to blow the lid off the business is probably a gay or trans wrestler. And I mean, if you look at like Darren Young, you were talking about like, oh, do they have to do the thing where like he comes out and they make it part of an angle? Well, with Darren Young, the decision was made not to do that, right? That he came out and they kind of, they, they milked it for the PR or whatever, but they didn't make it part of an angle because they thought that was going to be exploitative. And what happened? It was the worst thing that ever happened to Darren Young's career that they didn't make it part of some kind of an angle. So I think that you know, that yeah, if he is going to come out and identify, then that should be reflected on TV or else that's just as disingenuous as the Billy and Chuck side where you're saying, oh, you think we're going to represent you, but no, 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 we're really still the jocks making fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a, it's, it's a perfect way to, to put it. I think that we have... There, there, there are times where I, I think that, you know, sometimes the wrestling community can't necessarily deal with uh, stuff like this. But at the same time, you know, we've got to try it before we automatically poo-poo it, if that makes any sense. Uh, oh, 100%. And I think Velveteen Dream and, and Aleister Black was, like you said, if you're not, if you don't think there was queer subtext to that, you're fucking kidding yourself. Like... It was as explicit as they could be. And what I actually thought was interesting is the ways in which, and, and to bring it all the way back to Goldust, that like psychosexual aspect that was there was not treated by Alistair as like gay pan, like, ew, no homo. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I thought they, that Alistair Black was treated as the baby face in that without then turning around and demeaning Velveteen Dream. Uh, or am I? Did I miss something? And he was actually a total. No, player. I think that you. I think that's completely on the nose. And to like not name drop, but also not be too 
Uh, uh, I know the person who actually came up with that entire storyline. Uh, he is a promoter of a, a well-known uh, wrestling company, but I don't, th- I don't know if he wants me to say it, but like, he is not gay, but he is, ob- he's actually obsessed with drag. Um, <laughs> but he, he specifically sold it to Triple H as it like, you know, having homoerotic tendencies but actually still being respectful because he loves um the way that uh, wrestling can kind of be erotic in so many other different ways uh but he was very clear about how respectful he wanted it to be and i think that it, it showed a lot and when he told me that i was like that makes complete sense because i see it in your in your <laughs> i was gonna say, i see it in your progress hint, hint. <laughs> um of, of of that you do a very very good job of of showcasing that uh, so thank you Glenn Robinson uh, <laughs> so, at, that, at that point who gives a shit <laughs> uh, but Glenn makes a big big deal about uh, of doing it and he it's it's amazing so you do I, because I fe- having watched that I felt like I could give the WWE at least a second chance um, so that's good to hear that I'm not the only person that thought that um, I think. And, and and more and more importantly, I think Glenn Glenn was very uh, clear that tri- when he sort of uh, pitched it to Triple H, Triple H was just like, "That sounds great. Do you think can you do it? All right, let's do it." And that was it. It wasn't a big meeting about it. Triple H was very uh, apparently is very much so um, all about different opinions and uh, understandings, and I love that that he's just kind of like. All right, sure. You think you can make this work out? You think you can be respectful as long as it's respectful? Well, it also coincides with him talking to Lita for the first uh, Iron Man match, female Iron Man match, and him him asking her, should we call it Iron Man or should we call it Iron Woman? She's like, well, it's the same thing that the men do, so it needs to be called an Iron Man's match. She's like, don't change the name of it because it's women. She's like, we are doing the exact same thing. It's the same name. Don't I did not know that, but yeah, that is that is a very interesting that he he is actively inclusive while still being you know a jockey straight white dude. <laughs> um, I think we're gonna end the the actual episode, um, but uh, you know the, uh, the the meat. Um, this was great. Thank you so much, Darnell. This was absolutely fantastic. Um, thank, thank you for having me. Uh, and I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so it's uh, yeah. And I, I really like your podcast, uh, so. Oh, thank uh, you. You guys, are, you guys are really smart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but we do have uh, – I want you to stick around. We're just going to finish up. Do you have time to stick around for another couple of minutes? Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, you wanted to do the uh, Thinky Wrestling podcast, right? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Just, just a couple of recommendations from the last couple of weeks in wrestling podcasting. Actually, in one non-wrestling recommendation just because – uh, first one, uh, Steve Austin show uh, from the first of this month, March first. That was the show with Vampiro. Um, want you to zero in on the fifty-eight minute twenty-five second mark and listen to it through about one oh five. But um, they're really talking about how wrestling is really a synergy of kind of all the different aspects of the creative television process. So how writing and direction and editing and talent really all have to come together to make the show work. A great power quote was a uh, vamp says at one point, you really have to construct the logic behind the violence. And I thought that was a great power quote, especially through the lens of uh, last week when that SmackDown clip was going around of all the edits and the beatdown, you know, the, 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 uh, the Kevin Dunn edits and stuff, the, all the jump cuts. 
Uh, so people were up in arms about that. So I thought that these two were having kind of an interesting uh, conversation that was kind of adjacent to that gif that was going around last week. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. I um, Yeah, what was it, like 35 cuts in 32 seconds or something crazy like that? And as film nerds, you, I think you mentioned that he broke the 180 rule. (laughs) Yeah, we got, uh, we were on, especially with Kevin Owens specifically, they kept cutting back and forth so that we were getting both sides of, uh, of Kevin Owens in a, in a way that was kind of jarring visually. Without an establishing shot. Yeah. Who's like, what are you doing? You have a hard camera, use it, reset the shot, you idiot. Like (laughs) you've been doing this professionally for a hundred years. It's also just, it gets to the thing of like, it, it just, you know, it, it makes it look worse. Like it makes it look like you have something to hide. Like they are making contact with each other. Like let people appreciate that when you're making all these jump cuts, it you're just making it seem faker than it is, which is like literally just about the stupidest thing someone presenting pro wrestling could do. And uh, your other podcast, you have another wrestling specific podcast right yeah yeah this one unfortunately uh comes from a deeply problematic figure but uh like i said last week when i recommended mantel i I try to listen to these people and just kind of hear them out even if i don't agree and even if i think they've done uh horrible horrible things in the past uh but dinner with the king jerry lawler's podcast (laughs) the worst person (laughs) yikes did you read the letter did you did you uh did you read the letter that he wrote to the judge about uh miscegenation Oh God, no, no, I did not. He literally said that the two the two girls who accused him of a uh, rape back in the day, he literally said like one of them had been known to sleep with a black guy. Like it, he wrote that in a letter to the judge. So like an official court document. Like yeah, it, it was a uh, Bixen Span got it uh, from the courthouse records. He he published it a couple of weeks ago. Were you going to say something, Darnell? I was going to say that sort of build up to like, you know, this guy isn't good in wrestling. And like literally in my head, I was like, the sad thing is there's like 50 oh, yeah. people this could be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I had so many different ideas as to who it could be. And then I was just like, oh, okay, that one. Uh, all right, cool. <laughs> and uh, he had a specific thing. Uh, uh, I, I've never heard of this person. You, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, who, who is he talking about? Oh, so uh, Dinner with the King, episode 47, which dropped on 228, February 28th. If you check in right about the one hour or one hour and one minute mark, uh, they talked for about 15 minutes about a territory era wrestler named Tojo Yamamoto. And uh, I specifically wanted to throw this one out here because it connects back to one of our previous episodes, actually, when we talked about uh, the Cold War episode way back when we mentioned sort of uh, the the way that heels shifted from being kind of the World War II era Nazis and Japanese into being communists. And uh, Tojo was a, a, a World War II era, you know, uh, Japanese heel in the, the 50s and 60s and in the 70s. And then he kind of transitioned into being kind of an innovator of hardcore wrestling, like one of the first wrestlers I've seen, or one of the earliest wrestlers I've seen photographed holding a kendo stick slash Singapore cane. But uh, he innovated a lot of that stuff. He innovated all the stuff that your favorite heel from the 80s does, all the, you know, fingers to the eyes and pulling at the face. Like, that's all Tojo Yamamoto stuff. So he was a really influential guy, and his career also kind of connects to something we talked about in a previous episode. So look at that one-hour, one-minute mark on Dinner with the King to hear about Tojo Yamamoto. There is an amazing, brace yourself, there is an amazing Pearl Harbor joke told. So get ready for it. <laughs> I think it's time. We've waited long enough. We can we can start to roll out some of the really choice Pearl Harbor pearls. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. <laughs> Are uh, you ready for my uh, my non wrestling uh, recommendation? Yes, I am. 
<laughs> All right. My non-wrestling recommendation this week is for a podcast called Empty Frames. Uh, they drop bi-weekly just like we do every other Tuesday. Uh, episode three just dropped on the 6th. But uh, it's a podcast about the 1990 robbery at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, where uh, the, the most expensive robbery, like or the most value, highest valued robbery in the history of the world, pretty much. And um, it's just a really, really interesting breakdown of the story. And there's so many different theories about what happened. And each episode, or at least in episodes two and three, and what they're planning for four is they, they bring in one person who's kind of an expert on an angle of this story and they let them tell their whole version. So in episode two, they had one expert tell kind of his whole version of what happened and heard him out. And in episode three, they brought another expert on and they heard her whole version of what happened, which was totally different from the first guy and so on and so forth. So if you're into crime or mystery or just really well-told podcasts, kind of like serial, uh, check out Empty Frames. Sounds great. Um, Darnell, you uh, plugs. If you want to do any plugs, go right ahead. Um, Oh God, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> I am a member of the Pro Wrestling Iowa uh, Network. Uh, I am one of the co-hosts of Pro Wrestling Mothership. Uh, that's PW Mothership on Twitter. We break down all things wrestling. Uh, every single week, I specialize in UK wrestling and women's wrestling. Um, and then we have, you know, good, hard conversations. I'm also one of the co-hosts of Capital Wrestling, um, based out of Hoboken with Dustin uh if if you are if you do live in New York City, um, I highly recommend you come see us in Hoboken on March twenty fourth for the anniversary show. It's three hundred one Garden Street, Hoboken, New Jersey. It takes like no time to get there, uh, so uh, please, 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 please come. And I feel like I do something else, but <laughs> if you oh, want, what's your Twitter? Yeah, and my Twitter uh, at Dinolicious. Uh, I talk a lot about butts and thighs and wrestling, so. If those are the things you like, you should probably follow me on Twitter. Uh, Tyler, uh, Tyler bait. Is that, is yeah. that his, <laughs> I had never noticed his thighs until you. Are you serious, Nick? I never, I've only seen him wrestle twice and I had uh, never okay. really. And I saw the second I saw, I was like, Oh my God, it's the only thing I can look at. Like that. I, someone else uh, did that actually. And I was like, I'm taking that. But Tyler bait is like, the perfect thing to call him. Uh, and if you want to see a bunch of obscene uh, gifs and comments made towards Finn Balor and his beautifulness, I'm the person to follow. <laughs> yeah, I can fair. I can second that. It's just not fair. <laughs> Eat a carb. <laughs> I love the one where they have him like look at a donut and he's like, I'm I'm good. <laughs> no wait, he eats the donut, doesn't it? Dean Ambrose gives him a donut and he eats a part of it. And then he melts because his body can't deal with the uh, he's he, he, like Chris from Parks and Rec, but instead of a flu destroying his body because it's a microchip, uh, it's it's a single bite from a donut. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks again, Darnell, for coming. Uh, Dave, thanks as always. Next week's episode, not next week's episode, but the episode that will be uh, premiering next will be on disappointment. So I guess look forward to that. Your time to fall.